listening to BuddhistGeeks.com, January 29th, 2007, Episode 4. Alan Wallace, get a PhD in contemplative science. In our second podcast with Alan Wallace, he presents a new model for professional contemplatives. Instead of trying to transplant the monastic model to the West, Dr. Wallace suggests that contemplation become an actual profession. Just as a neuroscientist would go to school to get a PhD and spend 40 hours a week working in the field, so too could we have contemplative scientists who devote their time to the exploration and investigation of subjective experience. For more information about Dr. Wallace and his work, visit www.alanwallace.org. This is part two of a three-part series. If you're interested in sponsoring our podcast, please visit www.buddhistgeeks.com forward slash advertise. And you mentioned uh, a little earlier that you, you stopped being a monk because you didn't feel like sort of this culture supported that kind of um, relationship or that kind of spiritual endeavor. And you've also mentioned that it can take quite a number of months to develop that degree of depth in your meditation. So I'm wondering how those two fit together. Is it possible for people who, who are committed, you know, committed practitioners who live in the West that want to develop that kind of platform? What would that take, or, or is it even something that we should be going after? Well, it's very clear in the whole Buddhist tradition that it's not necessary to become a monk or a nun in order to become a highly experienced or even highly realized meditator. Many of the greatest yogis of Tibet, for example, like Milarepa, and more recently, Tengu Kinsa Rinpoche, Dujum Rinpoche, and many others were not monks, and yet they were widely regarded as extraordinarily realized masters. And so the, the major issue here is not whether, one, whether or not one takes monastic ordination, uh, which really requires some kind of a support s- structure. That is, it's really helpful to have, have monasteries and fellow, fellow monks, uh, an abbot, and support from the, from the lay public. And very, there's very little in the way of any of that in the West nowadays. But if one is committed to the contemplative path and wants to develop shamatha, then this requires a kind of professional commitment that actually we're very familiar with. We've just not applied it, or very few of us have applied it to meditation. And that is, a lot of people think they're very serious meditators if they meditate for an hour or two a day. But frankly, that's the kind of commitment that a lot of golfers have, or people who jog, or people who you know, work out in a weight room. Uh, it's not a professional commitment. It's, that's kind of the commitment of a serious hobby. But if we take a brain scientist, well, you never, you, you won't, you, a brain scientist, so let's say a, 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 a brain surgeon or an astronomer or take any other a, a medical doctor, I think you won't find any of them who become professionals by, doing, by, by learning their trade for an hour or two a day. It doesn't happen. It takes, it takes a period of years of absolutely concerted effort, 8, 10, 12, 14 hours a day, every day, maybe a little weekend off once in a while. But this is the nature of professional training, whether it's getting a PhD in sciences, whether it's getting an MD, whether it's getting you know, any kind of professional training. It requires years of very concerted effort. And in Buddhism and other contemplative traditions, then this is very well known that in order to become truly an adept, an expert uh, in meditation, requires no less a commitment to contemplative training than it requires to become a professional neuroscientist. And so this is perfectly feasible. Again, you don't have to become a monk and so on, but it does require just to take the example of, let's say, a neuroscientist. Let's imagine that you're an undergraduate college student and you suddenly become inspired. I'd really like to become a neuroscientist. Well, they say, well, okay, do you have to become a monk? No. 
But you need to get a formal education. I mean, there's a lot of theory there. It's not just tinkering around the, around the brain, but you really need to learn the theory so that when you're looking at the brain, you really have a much clearer idea of what you're looking at and how to, how to go about probing into it and under, understanding how it works. Otherwise, you're just kind of looking at a, a kind of a jelly-like blob of gray matter. And so likewise for meditation, if one is really serious, wants to approach this professionally, then getting some years of professional theoretical training is really important. And this has been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years in Buddhism, but it still hasn't really set in the, mi- in, in the mindset of most West- Westerners, including Western Buddhists, that to become professionally trained requires professional theoretical training. Uh, because Buddhist, Buddhist meditation is one heck of a lot more than bare, bare attention or simply being mindful or reciting some mantra, for example. And so there's theoretical training, but then, if, let's say, so let's imagine as an undergraduate, a neuroscience major, you, you put in four years of, of undergraduate training, including getting kind of the relate, related topics of chemistry, biology, physics, and so forth, and you come out with a BA. Well, that's good, or BS, Bachelor of Science, good. But you want a professional training. What this means, now you need to get graduate training. It's a very simple, similar thing for meditation. So now you really would like to, learn, to study shamatha, or maybe you'd like to study Dzogchen or Mahamudra. Good. Well, now you're looking at more graduate-level training. But if you really want to become a practicing scientist, it's not just reading a lot of books and attending a lot of lectures and taking tests, but you need a lab. You need a really well-equipped lab. And you need to learn how to use the instruments in the lab to analyze data, collect data, analyze data, and so forth, run experiments. And again, it's a very similar similar thing in meditation. You, you want years of theoretical training to become truly adept at it, know, know, know your way around the block. And then you need a lab, and a, and a meditative lab is not, say, $10 million neuroscience lab. It's a really well-equipped retreat facility, which provides you with simple but clean accommodation, good food, quiet atmosphere. Uh, and so you can spend your 8, 10, 12, out, 8, 10, 12, 14 hours a day in meditation with expert guidance, which is exactly what you would want if you could be a graduate student in neuroscience. And it would be very good to have some, some peers, that is, some fellow, fellow researchers uh, with whom you can share notes, you can collaborate, you can share experiences and so forth. And with, so I would say a very comparable degree of effort of getting a Ph.D. in neuroscience. So this is something that thousands and thousands of people are doing. That's just one branch of science. We have so many others where it's a commonplace to get an undergraduate degree in your, in your, in your area of interest and then go on and spend, oh, four, six, eight years of graduate training and then probably a couple of years of postdoc if you're in, in the sciences. And then by the time you're 30 or so, then you are now a young, well-equipped scientist and in a similar fashion, this is what Tibetans have been doing for a thousand years. This is what what has been done in Theravada countries and very in, in, in certain in certain monasteries there as well. And so, there's nothing outlandish about it. But we are living in such a materialistic culture that the notion of spending years and years of getting theoretical training and then practical training in a conducive environment, a contemplative research lab, so to speak, that's virtually unheard of here. But that's exactly what's necessary. In order to achieve shamatha, it's perfectly feasible, but you do need to have a lot of supportive costs and conditions coming together to facilitate that, just like you need a lot of supportive causes and conditions coming together to get a PhD in neuroscience. I guess connected with that, do you, do you think there are certain structural changes that would need to happen, you know, 
on a societal level? Are there people, you know, do a bunch of rich, you know, people need to get together and start a sort of grant for, you know, professional meditators? Or do you foresee anything like that happening where, where that becomes possible? Well, you know, as a matter of fact, I think that's a really good idea. I, I look at myself when I was um, when I was 34 and wanted to come back to um, to come back to college. I was a Buddhist monk. I had basically no money, but I had I was very motivated. I was intelligent enough to do the work, and I got into Amherst, and they gave me a full scholarship. That was a, that was perhaps the most expensive college in the whole country. I think it was rated number one when I, in the whole country when I was there. Uh, but there's no way I could possibly have attended that college if it had not been for a full scholarship. And then I wanted to get a graduate, de- a graduate degree. I wanted to get a Ph.D., so I went to Stanford. I got a full scholarship there as well. And so if it hadn't been for that, then, you know, then I'd be out of luck in terms of my Western education. Um, and this is a commonplace, as you well know, in the sciences. If you're going for a graduate degree in the sciences, any of the hard sciences, physics, chemistry, biology, um, well, you can assume that you're going to get a free ride. You know, I mean, you'll have, you'll have to do a lot of work. You'll probably be a research, research assistant. You'll get various, um, you know, kind of jobs in the university. They're not just going to let you, you know, hang out and do your own stuff. But in any good university, when they accept graduate students into the sciences, it comes with a, you know, with a full, whole, a whole financial package. And so it's not reasonable to expect that oh, pretty much anybody, certainly, not, certainly unreasonable to expect that young people who are highly motivated would like to really go for professional training in contemplative theory and practice, that they should all be independently wealthy because this requires years of dedicated effort, uh, just exactly, as I said, like getting a PhD in any, any, any of the sciences. And so this really does require endowments so that when you have very gifted people that are highly motivated, intelligent, mentally, psychologically healthy, really wanting to, to devote themselves to such practice, that it becomes financially feasible for them. So this is, I would have to say, this is a core aspiration of mine in establishing the Santa Barbara Institute for Consciousness Studies, that we can not only, that we can do a couple of things. One is that we can provide a matrix of courses in the interdisciplinary study of consciousness, so people, students, can be exposed not only to Buddhist ideas, but to Hindu ideas, Taoist ideas, uh, the perspectives of psychology, neuroscience, philosophy of mind, classical Greek thought, and so forth, to really get be exposed to a wide range of perspectives and methodologies for exploring consciousness. So get the, get the theory down. But also, and really this is my heart's desire, is to create a contemplative research facility where people can go into not only three-month retreats or one-year retreats, but you know, five-year retreats, ten-year, ten-year retreats, so they can really explore in depth, practicing eight, ten, twelve hours a day, really explore in depth the nature of consciousness, potentials of consciousness, ways of transforming the mind. But for for that to happen, uh, people have to eat. And even if we have such a contemplative facility, I mean, there will, there will be overhead costs, of course. We'll try to keep them low, but this will, will require some kind of an endowment, and that's what I'm hoping will will emerge, and hopefully in the in the near future, because I'm finding more and more young people, but also middle-aged and older people, who really hear about this possibility, become inspired, and want nothing more than just to dedicate their life to such training. But right now, there are hardly any places where you can do it, especially over the long term. And then if, even if you find a place, it's bound to cost a lot of money as, as the months go by. And then it's hard to find any place where there are competent instructors who are staying in one place and really giving sustained instruction and guidance. And so these are not insurmountable obstacles, but they are challenges. And these are ones that I would really love to see us meet as we, as we further develop the Santa Barbara Institute. Oh, that sounds great.
Yeah, if, if if that comes about, you'll you'll see me and and some of my friends knocking on your door. <laughs> well, I think this would be great, and you know, then we'll then we'll be accepting students like Amherst College. Uh, we'll be we'll be very selective. I just wanted to get highly motivated people, or you know, very good discipline, intelligence, highly, and all of that, and then you know, give them the very best we can. I mean, I feel you know a deep sense of gratitude not only to these uh, Amherst College and Stanford University that gave me full scholarships, but also to the oh hundreds and thousands of hours of instruction, both theoretical and practical instruction, I received from so many Buddhist teachers, about sixty of them, from the all four of the traditions of Tibetan Buddhism and Theravada Buddhism, and virtually all of that instruction was given for free. And so, um, you know, I feel a great sense of gratitude and indebtedness to all my teachers, and I would like to see, do, do everything I can to make it possible for young people like myself 30 years ago to be able to receive the kind of uh, theoretical and practical instruction, guidance that they, they, they yearn for. And of course, not, only, not with just myself being the instructor, but um, inviting, you know, very highly qualified teachers from different traditions. Uh, so that we can give kind of like a university of contemplative inquiry, you know, that, that it's not trying, it's not uh, just trying to pr promote any one particular tradition, but looking at it as, as, you, as you can see from the mission statement for the Santa Barbara Institute, really approaching this in a scientific way, which will do it, be with all appreciation and, and from my from my perspective, deep respect and reverence for Buddhism and other contemplative traditions, but not not following a biased approach of, you know, trying to plug one as opposed to the others. This has been a presentation of BuddhistGeeks.com, copyright 2007. Music in this podcast provided by C for Chaos. For more great music and writing, visit his blog at www.cforchaos.com. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.